Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 306. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now this show has got the subtitle of Robots Doom and Nikam. Yes, this show is a robot special with two narrations by Nikam of two fantastic stories. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show then. First up, we have Science News with Mr. JJ Campanella. The first story up today is iRobot by Guy Haley. Then we have another short story, Automatic Diamante by Philip Sugaz. Then there's another fiction crawler by Matthew Sanborn Smith. Oh, they don't come often enough. Then right at the end, we have a promo for Crud Rat. Now, this is Artistic Whispers production. This is presenting Gail Carragher's Crud Rat. So do listen out for that. That is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So... Now, just apologies for last week's show. There was a bit of brutal, <laughs> dare I say, editing going on there when I kind of got back and had a listen to it there. As everyone remembers, I was recording that in the daughter's bedroom and it was a kind of bit of a chewy day and that's where I had to end up recording it. And like I say, I got a few emails. Tony, were you all right that day? Were you, were you okay? And there was a couple on Facebook mentioning it. Yes, I was fine. It's just... I had this certain, I hate not getting it out. You know, it's got to go out. The show's got to go out. And just those are the kind of consequences sometimes. So apologies for that. Let's hope this one is fantastic. So first up then, it's Mr. JJ Campanella, Science News Jim. Greetings and machinations, my nebulous listeners. And welcome to this September 2013 Science News Update. I am your host for this coruscating science podcast segment 
Jim Campanella. Let's get the proceedings going this evening with a couple of world science records. I always like these because, in their own weird way, they're kind of awe-inspiring. First, the largest virus has been discovered, and it's actually a doozy. Whenever I teach microbiology or cell biology classes, I always say the same thing. Viruses are invisible to a light microscope because they are so small. Viruses were discovered in the early 1900s, but could not be visualized until the late 1940s when electron microscopes were invented. Your average virus is maybe a tenth the size of an E. coli, and an E. coli is not exactly big. It's about one micron by about three microns, but uh, you can see them in a light microscope. A micron, also known as a micrometer, is a millionth of a meter. Yes, that's very tiny. A flu virus, on the other hand, is about 100 nanometers in size, and a nanometer is a billionth of a meter. The new so-called megavirus, which has been dubbed the Pandora virus, has a length of a full micron, which makes it huge for the virus world. It was found on the seafloor off the coast of Chile by Dr. Chantal Abergel of Marseille University and reported on in late August in the journal Science. Pandora virus Salinas is about twice as long as the previous record holder, Megavirus Chilensis, with a genome that's twice as large. That makes P. Salinas larger than the smallest bacteria. Beyond its impressive size, the Pandora virus is strange in some other ways as well. Rather than reproducing by first making a viral coat and then filling it in, or by building its coat around the genetic material, P. Salinas builds its insides and outsides simultaneously, starting at one end of the horseshoe-shaped viral particle and finishing at the other. And what's more strange, only 7% of the virus's genes match any known gene sequences. The authors suggest a controversial hypothesis for why the Pandora virus is so odd. It could have evolved from a type of free-living ancient cell that no longer exists. Its discovery is likely to add fuel to the heated debate about the evolutionary origin of viruses. The next world record was reported in the journal Nature Geoscience this month by Dr. William Sager of Texas A&M University. In short, he and his team bounced sound waves off the ocean floor and discovered the most massive volcano in the world, with a footprint the size of New Mexico. It crouches in the dark, dank, deleterious depths of the western Pacific Ocean. The top of its hollowed peak lies under two kilometers of water. Sager and his team have called it Tamu Massive. It is mainly a gargantuan basaltic mound, and it may rival the largest known volcano in the solar system, which is Mars's Olympus Mons. Take that, Mars. Tamu Massive forms a broad, rounded dome that rises four kilometers from the seafloor and stretches 450 by 650 kilometers across. Yes, that is big. Core samples that the researchers extracted from the volcano's slopes showed that during its prime, when it was active about 145 million years ago, the ancient mound spewed lava sheets 23 meters thick. Just to put that in perspective, it makes Vesuvius look like a uh, kid with baking soda and vinegar. Next story. So here's a new feature that I may or may not continue, depending upon my mood and the amount of news out there. The word of the month. 
This month's word is amusia. Amusia is an inability to sing or recognize musical notes quite correctly. Roseanne Barr and William Hung and apparently many of the contestants on American Idol fall into this category of people. It is reported by Dr. Sean Hutchins of the International Laboratory for Brain, Music, and Sound Research in the journal Brain and Language that actually only about 10% of adults sing poorly. Several reports suggest, although some researchers, myself included, think that that figure is an underestimate. Some of those so-called crooners have actual tone deafness that afflicts about 4% of the population. Genetic and brain traits render these folks completely unable to tell different musical notes apart or to recognize a tune as common as Happy Birthday. Amusia often, but not always, results in inept singing. Preliminary evidence suggests that tone-deaf individuals register pitch changes unconsciously, although they can't consciously decide whether one pitch differs from another. More often, new studies suggest bad singers hear music just fine. Some can't control their singing voices or align what they sing with what they've heard. Others mistake different sound qualities or timbers of voices and instruments for different musical pitches. For them, trying to sing along to someone else's voice or to a piano quickly degenerates into an off-key fiasco. One of the weird phenomena that Hutchins found was that sometimes amusia raises its painful head in a very different way. He found that even some tone-deaf individuals who insist that their singing stinks actually carry tunes pretty well. One such woman, we'll call her Jane, contacted Hutchins because she was certain her neighbor had amusia. Jane told Hutchins that she had no musical aptitude, but liked to sing around the house just for herself because she liked music, despite how terrible it sounded. Yet the so-called wacky neighbor kept complimenting her singing. Jane insisted that her neighbor must have some sort of inability to hear bad music. As it turned out, Jane was wrong and the neighbor was right. Testing confirmed that Jane sang in tune, but she didn't realize she sang in tune. She has a form of amusia that has gone largely unstudied, which is the inability to recognize your own tunedness while you can still hear others in tune. One of the stories that Hutchins tells is about several singers at karaoke bars in the Philippines that have been shot to death by offended spectators for mangling the melody of Frank Sinatra's My Way. And I have to tell you, I've been in several singing groups and choirs in my life, and I entirely sympathize with the offended Filipinos. Sometimes an amusic person will actually pain you at such a physical level that I can imagine such a visceral reaction. The next story is actually related to amusia in humans, despite the fact that it's about birds. This story comes to us from this month's Journal of Experimental Biology, from the lab of Dr. Stephanie White, a neuroethologist from UCLA. Dr. White is interested in how the brain controls behavior and how behavior affects the brain. She has been specifically working with finches. To attract a female finch's attention, a male songbird needs to woo her with his courtship song. However, male songbirds aren't born pre-programmed with the song and have to learn it by mimicking their kinsmen's songs in much the same way that humans learn to speak. Just like us, practice makes perfect, and male songbirds will often practice every morning. But how exactly does practicing help the bird? 
Well, in humans, the ability to speak properly relies on two important DNA transcription factors, FOXP1 and FOXP2. These two genes regulate the expression of other genes. It seems that it's the same in birds. If you turn off FOXP2, it prevents birds from accurately copying their tutor's melodies, which sounds a lot like amusia, doesn't it? But White wondered whether FOXP2 was involved in birdsong after initial learning. From her previous work, she knew that expression of the FOXP2 gene decreased when zebra finches practiced their songs, but wondered whether this happened in other related birds. She decided to see what happened to FOXP2 levels in Bengalese finches. She said, quote, Bengalese finches were originally bred from white-rumped munia for their colorful plumage. That freed up the male from needing to keep his song recognizable to the females in the wild. That allowed the males to evolve singing more interesting songs that the female responded to instead of predictable repetition as in other finches like the zebra finches. Unquote. White placed her male Bengalese finches into sound attenuating chambers. On the day of the experiment, she woke birds up at 8 a.m. and let half of them serenade the room as they practiced their tunes. To prevent the other half from practicing, she would keep a close eye on them, distracting them if they looked as if they were about to burst into song. At various time points, one hour, an hour and a half, and two hours, White would collect brain samples to analyze for FOXP2 expression. White's team found that FOXP2 levels in Area X, that's the brain region in bird song learning, did decline after one and a half hours, confirming that FOXP2 plays an important reinforcing role in perfecting and maintaining courtship songs in birds. It's clear that FOXP2 is a key player in this cycle of practice and performance, and it's likely to be the same for humans. White says, quote, With these trial and error types of behavior, you can't just pick them up once. You have to keep them up, and you're basically fine-tuning your own levels of these genes in the brain, unquote. I still wonder whether a musia on humans may be characterized as genetic deficit. If that is the case, then perhaps the next story can help those sad people with terminal tone deafness. For the last 10 years or so, studying to gene therapy has been stalled in humans because of a whole series of problems that began in the early 2000s. The biggest problem was that the DNA that is carried to be inserted into human cells has to have a carrier system of some sort that will insert the DNA. But all the viral carrier systems that have been tried previously had the potential to put the DNA into the wrong place and induce the newly transformed cells to become cancerous. These viruses plunked themselves into the patient's DNA, and they sometimes amped up activity of neighboring cancer-causing genes leading to leukemia. That side effect, along with the death of a young man participating in another clinical trial, nearly halted gene therapy in the U.S. a decade ago. Well, Dr. Luigi Naldini of the San Rafael Telethon Institute for Gene Therapy in Milan has just reported in the journal Science that his team was able to alter lentiviruses so that they won't accidentally turn on nearby genes. He has infected bone marrow stem cells with lentiviruses carrying the appropriate gene and transplanted these stem cells into patients. Several years ago, using his new system, Naldini gave gene therapy to three boys with Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, an inherited disease that disables the immune system. 
Now, two or three years after the therapy, the boys appear to have healthy immune systems. And the boys also don't show any signs of developing leukemia. In another trial, Naldini and his colleagues treated three children with a metabolic disease called metachromatic leukodystrophy. Children with the disease lack an important enzyme. As a result, they gradually become paralyzed and suffer damage to their ability to think, dying within a couple of years. Up to two years after the therapy, the children in the study are still making enough of the enzyme to keep their brain and spinal cord working normally with no sign of leukemia. Naldini's lentiviruses are a major breakthrough in gene therapy, and if they prove safe, it could lead to treatments for everything from Parkinson's disease and diabetes to, well, amusia? Okay, probably not amusia, but certainly the other things. Next story. You may remember last month, I was, and eventually my whole family, had some horrible form of Asian flu that I picked up in Florida at a conference. When I actually felt like eating and drinking, which was not very much during the illness, I drank orange juice, as did my wife and eventually my kids when they fell victim to my devilish malady. Anyway, the assumption was, as I suspect most of you listeners have, is that Orange juice is good for you during an illness because it gives you large amounts of vitamin C. And we believe that vitamin C is good for the immune system to help fight infections. As it turns out, there has been evidence for years that vitamin C probably does not help fight infections as much as the common folk think. So a researcher at Oregon State decided to find out if any other fruits actually should be eaten when you are sick. In other words, if orange juice doesn't help you get better, does anything. Dr. Adrian Gombart, in a paper published in the journal Molecular Nutrition and Food Research, found that red grapes and blueberries may give your immune system a boost that oranges simply don't. Gombart found that both grapes and blueberries contain compounds called stilbenoids, which work with vitamin D to increase expression of the human Cathelicidin antimicrobial peptide gene, which is usually called CAMP for short, and is involved in immune function. The stilbenoid compounds included resveratrol in red grapes and pterostilbin in uh, blueberries. It's interesting that resveratrol actually is good for something after it's been debunked as the fountain of youth compound that we heard about for so many years. Gombart said, quote, out of a study of hundreds of compounds, just these two popped right out. We were really surprised that oranges had nothing to contribute, unquote. Additionally, he said, the synergy of stilbenoids with vitamin D to increase camp gene expression was significant and intriguing. We found it a pretty interesting interaction, unquote. Dr. Gombart went on, however, to note that these findings were made in laboratory cell cultures and do not prove that eating blueberries and red grapes will boost a person's immune function. This is pretty much what I always say to you guys. Just because it works in a lab does not mean that it'll work for you at home. The CAMP gene has been shown to play a key role in the innate immune system, the body's first line of defense that gives it the ability to fight bacterial infections. This response is especially crucial now that so many antibiotics have become less effective, and the bacteria seem to be becoming more resistant to them every day. 
Gombart's previous research has found a strong association between adequate vitamin D levels and the function of the CAMP gene. This new study suggests that certain other compounds may play a role as well. So the last story of the night is a follow-up on V'ger. I mean, that is the space probe Voyager, for those of you who are a-speculative fictive. Well, Voyager has finally done it. It has officially left the solar system and entered into interstellar space. That is the space between the stars. NASA scientists reported September 12th in the journal Science that on August 25th, 2012, NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft finally exited the vast bubble of particles that encircles our sun and planets. At the time, Voyager was about 18.2 billion kilometers from the sun, or nearly 122 times as far from the sun as Earth. The confirmation of Voyager's interstellar exploits came after determining that the probe is surrounded by a relatively dense fog of galactic particles rather than a thin mist of solar ones. It was a tricky measurement that required patience and some clever detective work and a serious bunch of luck. So for those of you who think they misheard when I said 2012 earlier or that I made a mistake, I was correct. The reason it's taken a year to report all this is because it's taken a year to ensure all their calculations and measurements were correct and to actually figure out how to do the measurements. So yes, V'ger has already journeyed beyond the solar system for an additional year. The first evidence that Voyager had reached that boundary appeared a bit more than a year ago, on July 28, 2012, when the number of solar particles measured by Voyager plunged. Then, the particle count rebounded a few days later. That was followed by three similar dips and recoveries occurring in the following weeks until August 25th, when solar particles disappeared for good. The solar particle measurement, combined with a surge in higher energy particles from other stars, suggested that Voyager had exited the heliosphere and reached the promised land of interstellar space. In fact, there were a whole bunch of publications that made exactly that claim with pretty much all that as their evidence. The NASA team, as any good scientists, were very conservative until all the data was in and resisted that same conclusion. They lacked evidence of what they thought would be the key mark of interstellar space. What the Voyager team wanted was an independent measurement to confirm the story implied by the original particle data. One option for that measurement was to prove that Voyager was surrounded by cold, dense plasma from interstellar space rather than the hot, wispy plasma from our sun. That would have been easy to do using Voyager's instruments themselves, except for one little problem. Voyager 1's plasma measurement instrument stopped working somewhere out near Saturn 33 years ago. Wow, that is a really odd thing to say out loud. Anyway, Dr. Donald Gurnett, a Voyager scientist at the University of Iowa, found a way to get the measurement anyway. He poured over data from another instrument on V'ger and discovered that in April 2013, a blast wave from the sun the same kind that can cause solar storms on Earth, had reached Voyager's neck of the woods and jostled electrons in the surrounding plasma. It was the first such energetic shock in about nine years, so they were very lucky. 
At any rate, using Gurnett's data based on the plasma density around the spacecraft, which sounds like technobabble out of Star Trek, they were able to show that Voyager was truly in the interstellar void. It is a scary thing for those of us old enough to actually remember way back then, but Voyagers 1 and 2 were launched in 1977, back when the original Star Wars premiered and George Lucas had talent. Wow, that was such a long, long time ago. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, eat your grapes, practice your singing, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, what can I say? Big, big thank you, sir. Thank you so much. So we'll get on to our first little short story, and it is just a little short story, I, Robot by Guy Healy. I'll give you a little heads up about Guy. For want of a better Linnean-type characterization of his own peculiar sub-career, Guy Healy is a science fiction journalist and now a writer of the same. The principal difference being he interviewed people about making stuff up. Now he makes his own stuff up, and the latter is more fun. Haley was born in 1973, the eldest of five boys, all of whom are arty media sorts, if short-tempered and well short, except number four, who was genuinely large enough to ride a horse. They were raised on the moors of Yorkshire, where they all survived to adulthood, despite freezing temperatures, angry boggarts, and the proximity of the volatile Lancastrian border. Haley began his career in SF Magazine in 1997, where he eventually became deputy editor before leaving to edit the notable gaming magazine White Dwarf at the Games Workshop. Three years later, he ran away to be involved in the launch of the ill-fated, if bold, SF Magazine Death Ray, which he also edited. Since its demise in 2009, he has been wandering the, the media hinterlands as a sword for hire, writing and editing magazines, as well as penning the occasion novel. Haley lives in Somerset with his wife, Emma, young son, Benny, a Malamute called Magnus, and an enormous, evil-tempered Norwegian forest cat called, ironically, Buddy. Don't touch him, he really does bite. His website, guyhealy.wordpress.com. Please pop over there, Guy, what a star. Thank you so much. This story, as you know, is narrated by our very own Nick Cam. Nick's doing a, a double special. I think it was Nick that kind of brought our attention to this story as well. So big hats off to Nick as well. And Nick is, yes, I'll get t- to that as well. Nick is hosting or is doing the narrator's workshop. So if you want to be, you know, if you want to kind of tackle, do, do some narrations, you think you've got it in you to be a narrator, or you want to up your game. And t- to be honest, if you get as good as Nick, just come over to the workshop. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present iRobot by Guy Haley There is nothing but the desert, a landscape of dust and ceaseless wind. Dunes of dust creep across the land, dust sheets from their scimitar peaks. Ribbons of dust undulate swiftly up and down their sides. The dust makes the sky brown, the rising sun pale and dirty. Shrouds of dust chase each other through the air, tangling daylight in their umber strands. The sun retaliates, flaring a little brighter, calling shadows from the desert, hard and straight, traces of something beneath the sand. There was a city here once. Wind blows harder, 
Brick and worn concrete rise from the desert, grains of dust carried from them in torrents. The walls have lost their edges, once smoothed by the scouring sands. They are as cracked as ancient teeth, and yet in procession, taken from afar, unwavering. The lines and cells the walls describe are echoes of lost angles and cast geometry, straight where the dust is rippled and curled. In their simple precision, the walls defy the fractal halls of the dust, although they cannot win the battle and have lost it many times before. These are secret marks, conjured rarely when the light is just so, legible only to archaeology. Their testimony goes unread. There are no archaeologists anymore. Nor are there doctors, nor policemen, no bombs, no vendors, no consumers, no mothers or fathers or children, no dogs or cats or bees or ants or trees. There is no one and nothing at all. Nothing but brown dust and the ruins they suffocate, uncover and suffocate again. In the lee of a broken wall two figures are revealed. One, huddled within the remains of long coat that flaps in the freezing wind, was once a man. Desiccated black flesh hard as plastic clings to yellow bones. Hair is still attached to his shriveled scalp. His eyes are raisins in his sockets. His mouth is as wide as only the mouths of the dead can be. His tongue hard and sharp inside his jaw. He lies on one arm, the other stretched out towards the second figure, as if in supplication or in revelation, the hand of an apostle reaching out to say, See, here is the Son of God. There are no gods now. The second figure is not human. It is blocky and broken, and its torso is pitted by the actions of the elements. Of its four limbs, one arm remains. Two of the fingers on the hand of his arm have broken away. It remains cloaked to its waist in the sand, coyly hiding the stumps of its legs. The wind pushes grains of sand from globules of melted plastic and metal scattered around the machine like dropped pearls. The ground they rest on is fused to glass. For much of the year the machine is hidden, Summer storms periodically uncover the city, and then it and its companion. Shifting ramparts build themselves up to the shattered chestplate and fall away to the whim of the wind. The sports of dust are relentless and have no winner. The robot still has a head, a cartoonish facsimile of a human being. Its eyes are broken. Those parts of its solar array that are whole are scrubbed opaque, as is the screen upon its chest. The machine has been dying a long time, but is not yet dead. As the veiled sun strikes the machine, something sparks inside. Images as indistinct through the robot's ruined screen as the sun is indistinct in the ruined sky flicker and dance. Good morning. The robot's voice speaks. It does not matter in which language. It knows them all in any case. 
and the speakers of languages are all dead and gone from the earth. Good morning. I have found 4,005 reminders. Without preamble, it begins. Music, the choice of a person whose dust is at one with all the other dust, crackles in the background. Parminda is 1,723 years old today. The reminders are the longest part of its liturgy. Reminders of things that were missed. Birthdays in the main, where cards were not sent. Others are appointments never kept, and prompts to attend regular meetings that ceased to be regular long ago. The machine recites them all with equanimity. Its voice is faint but cheerful, although a buzz mars it. At its sound, the wind seems cowed, as if offended. The recitation takes a long time. Finally, it is done. Last twittles. Moshe Horovitch is having palm-steamed yam for breakfast. Liam's train is late again, but he's enjoying a bacon sandwich. Melinda is very tired, but last night was fun. Rodrigo Anamate says you must check out this link. Link unavailable. No further messages. These messages are 619,423 days old. Elite. Please repeat. Voice command only. My touchscreen is damaged. Please have me serviced at your earliest convenience. I am not connected to the Internet. Searching for Wi-Fi connection. For a while, the silence is given back to the wind, to break or not as it chooses. No Wi-Fi detected. Silence again. The silence lasts the rest of the day. Today is a bright day by the standards of the era, and at times almost warm. The passage of time is uncertain. Noon is a blur in a different part of the sky. Afternoon a smear near the horizon. Brown day makes for a grey dusk. Night comes swiftly. There are no stars. The glow from the robot screen is a lonely light. The world retreats within it, becoming a square patch of sand with sloping sides, framing a dead man's outstretched hand. His bones gleam like gold. The robot is limited. It is programmed to show concern, yet not to be intrusive. In its mind flickering so erratically now, a facsimile of compassion gives rise to a need to reassure. I am afraid I cannot answer your last queries, it says. I am not equipped to make fire. I do not know how to make fire. I do not know the location of water. I cannot make water. This information is not available to me. I am not connected to the Internet. I am sorry. You are quiet, it says. Are you sad? Again, the machine falls silent as its worn brain searches for something to cheer this last master. I have some amusing footage of kittens, 
if you would like to see it. The night wears on. The machine's solar charge runs out. The light dies. The wind tucks the city back in. Back into its blanket of dust. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is guys. Guy, thank you so much. And Nick, we will see you in a minute or two. Now, I think what I'll do now, I said I would play Fiction Crawler at the end, kind of sort of, but I think I'll slip, <laughs> I'll slip Matthew in there now. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Matt, Fiction Crawler number 14, Squire. Hello, my nautical sofa surfers. This is your wandering starfish, Matthew Sanborn-Smith, and his thing he does here, Fiction Crawler. Holy stromboli, this makes two Fiction Crawlers in the same year. I can feel the wind in my hair. Well, all right, I can feel the wind across my scalp. There's no theme today, just good stories, like it ought to be. Oughtn't it? The last two times I met Marianne Mohanraj, the co-founder and former editor of Strange Horizons, which were also the first two times I met her, to be honest, I told her Strange Horizons nearly always gets a mention in the fiction crawler. For my money, which isn't much, I admit, Strange Horizons is one of the very best sources for original speculative fiction out there. If you're still not reading it, you need to change that shit straight away. This time around, StrangeHorizons.com gives us a story that shatters reality in a particularly refreshing way. It's called A to Z Theory by Japanese author To Enjo, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing, but this is Starship Sofa, and we stopped fighting that fight years ago. A to Z Theory is framed as a paper written in the future, which is part historical document, part speculation on the nature of the universe. It starts out merely crazy as it recalls a mathematical theory named after its 26 authors, who each discovered the theory independently and concurrently, listed alphabetically. Enjo explores this weirdness of bit and then suddenly ratchets up the strange. Then he does it again and again, roping in the maybe not-so-fictional Professor Moriarty, rebooting the universe, and pointing the way toward even weirder things to come. This story changed my head, probably by merely making me think new and wondrous thoughts, but what it felt like it was doing was weaving a piece of twine through many parts of my brain, which was then drawn out of my ear, pulling chunks of gray matter along its length like a string of beads. If that doesn't catch your attention, then know this. I went out and purchased Toanjo's collection Self-Reference engine on the strength of this story alone. That's what I'm saying, folks. This story made me spend money. Over at LightspeedMagazine.com is waiting for you the story Smoke City by Christopher Barzak. You walk into it thinking it's simply a steampunk fantasy, but by the time you've crawled out, you'll be gasping for fresh air. Our narrator is a woman who lives two lives, one in a world presumably clean and modern, or possibly futuristic, and another in Smoke City, a Victorian nightmare in which massive furnaces dominate the city and sunlight can't penetrate the blackened skies. She seems to phase between her two lives and a night in the more modern world as a year in the city. Her smoke Smoke City children grow quickly while she's away, and she can see them only briefly before offering them up to the machine. Smoke City is a story of industry as everything and all. The great furnaces devour coal as the mills chew up people who can never be anything more to the city than parts that wear down and will be replaced. The story is a powerful fable of both where we came from and where we still are, as the reader is forced to wonder if there is any real escape from Smoke City, whether in the narrator's other life or in our world today. I may have mentioned this before, but you've already forgotten, so it's okay. There was this science magazine cover I saw a couple of years back asking, if you could wipe out your bad memories, would you? I explained to the magazine cover that I was an artist and bad memories were my bread and butter, or would be if I ever got paid for this stuff. 
The magazine cover was unperturbed, and it wouldn't buy my story either. I wonder what bread and butter must taste like. E. Lily U has a story at escapepod.org that asks the same question about the memories, not the bread and butter. No, she sells her stories, like this one called Loss with Chalk Diagrams. It's about two friends with very different lives and different types of pain. Linda's pains of loss and Rebecca's pains of never having. But all these pains can be erased by a process called rewiring. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Which destroys bad memories. As the magazine I spoke to went on to mention, this selective memory erasure is being worked out in our world as we speak. Well, as I speak, you'll be making your own decisions on these topics before you know it. The society that you presents us with is one that has absorbed memory erasure as part of its culture and treats it with the same amount of casualness that it might treat getting contact lenses. In fact, that society warps as it forgets what long-lasting pain is, much less how it shapes a character. Linda belongs to the last world. Linda embraces her pain even as it's destroying her. Rebecca has a choice to make. Is it better to own your entire life experience and be damaged or to lose parts of yourself and be able to function in society? Yes, they both suck, so the moral of this story might be don't let bad things happen to you ever how about some scary stuff in which lots of bad things happen to lots of people time to whip out a classic story that our own amy h sturgis can dig on ed growlin posed the mask of the red death you can listen to it in an american male voice at escape pod sister cast podcastle at podcastle.org or listen to it in a british female voice at miette's bedtime story podcast at miettecast.com yes you could just pull it up at gutenberg and read it yourself but we're fat rich westerners enjoying the decadent decline of our civilization so lie back on your divan and let's someone else do the heavy word lifting. The Mask of the Red Death is one of those stories literature teachers trot out when they want to talk about symbolism, but put the cerebral crap aside for now and just enjoy the nightmare. The story opens with the grotesque horror of dying plague victims and closes with the inevitable horror we all face. In between is a cream filling of moody creepiness. It's the tale of the rich believing they can somehow not only buy their way out of death, but party down while they do so. Give this story a listen and see how that works out for them. You probably already know this story, but this, like others 
by Poe is worth a reread, or re-listen as the case may be. The guy was a master of compelling language that pulls you through a claustrophobic carnival atmosphere just as his group of partygoers are compelled to follow a certain uninvited guest through seven colorful rooms. Revel in the language and imagery and feel that last line like a coffin lid closing above you. Up now is the 2013 Hugo-nominated story, The Boy Who Cast No Shadow, by Thomas Olde Heuvelt, a Dutch author who helped me a bit with the pronunciation of his name, though I still magically fumbled it. You can download the story as an EPUB or Mobi file from pspublishing.co.uk. The boy of the title is named Look, and he indeed casts no shadow, has no reflection, and his image can't be captured by cameras. Perhaps due to this, his detached parents, and a childhood of government examination and mass media scrutiny, he finds no emotional connection to the world around him and no higher purpose in his life. One of his only desires is to see his own reflection. Things begin to turn around when he befriends a boy named Splinter who is made of glass and is nothing but reflections. Look is kind of happy that someone out there is worse off than he is. From there, this coming-of-age story becomes as much splinters as looks. The boys run away and go on a journey across Western Europe to find the things that are meaningful to each of them. I'll leave it to you to discover what they find, but the journey itself is more than Splinter ever hoped to have, considering his overprotective parents. His lesson, even for those of us who aren't made of glass, is when you let the fragility of your body become the dominant story of your life, you have no life story to tell. Read this one and maybe you'll decide to live a little more fearlessly. It's amazing what fiction can do to a person, isn't it? Finally, come kneel down with me at the shrine at which I worship, the work of William Gibson. If you don't know who William Gibson is, somebody must be forcing you to listen to this show. If you do know who he is, maybe you've only read his novels, or maybe you've read the story Burning Chrome before, but like Poe, you can come back to this story, as well as Gibson's other wonderfully rich work, again and again. Gibson's aesthetic from the get-go was science fiction at a higher resolution, and you can feel the future's grunge in the street visions he evokes. His language feels as carefully etched as circuits on a microchip found in a film. Gutter. I have a theory that William Gibson stood at the crossroads at midnight and made a pact with the devil, but instead of selling his soul, he gained his incredible writing skills in exchange for the promise that he would use the words chrome and neon in every piece of fiction he would ever write. As you'll see at BaneEbooks.com, in Burning Chrome, he gets both words out of the way by the second sentence. It's the story of a couple of talented hackers, Bobby and Jack, who never quite made it big, attempting to steal from Chrome, a highly dangerous and very wealthy eternal girl with mob connections. What seems like a suicide mission is made less risky with the discovery of two important things, a Russian piece of military-grade hardware which churns out computer subterfuge and viruses at a level hitherto undreamt by our boys, and a young woman named Ricky, who becomes a muse and guiding light to cyber cowboy Bobby and a tether to the real world for hardware man Jack. Burning Chrome doesn't have quite the polish of Gibson's later work, but in exchange for that, you get the energy of the raw signal while still feeling the cold emptinesses of the soul which permeate his sprawl trilogy. Bobby, on his way to make his fortune, never takes the time to consider what Ricky wants or even that she wants something at all, and while Jack does see it, he doesn't seem to be capable of doing a damn thing about it. It's a situation that, even if there could be winners, we're all likely to come out of remembering only the prices that were paid along the way. That's it for me, folksies. Links to all the stories in this armoire of delights can be found in the show notes. I can't break a promise if I don't make a promise, but perhaps you'll hear from me again before the end of all things. In the meantime, read this good stuff, maybe spray a little Lysol on your own sofa cushions, and get some rest, letting the fumes fuel psychotropic and disinfecting little dreams of me. Good night, sweet and sour princes and princesses. Good night. Matt's kindly put all those links. He's given us all those links to those stories. So if you want to come over the front of the website there, they're on this post. So please, if you fancy them stories, click on. 
And I can't honestly tell you enough. Beware the hairy mango. Please, please, please go over there and listen to that. Subscribe that and life will never be the same again. So next up is the main fiction, or it's one of the main fiction there, Automatic Diamante by Philip Sugaz. Now, Philip, is that how you is that how you pronounce your name? Who knows? Philip is a British writer with a single yellow eye in the centre of his head and a collection of vintage binoculars. His work has appeared in Interzone, The Guardian, The BSF, New Horizons Anthology and The Silver Thought Press, to name a few. He is the winner of the 2011 Likely Literature Festival Short Story Award and runner-up for the 2012 James White Award. He is the first in Spanish and Latin American literature, which is great for showing off on holiday. I love that. <laughs> he lives in Brighton with two small hairless monkeys and the keeper, the soon-to-be Mrs. Sugars. He tweets at, now there's a note here for me, this is, so this might be how you pronounce it, pronounced, Philippe Azucaz, so basically Spanish for Philip Sugaz. So there you go, and I'll put a link on to myelectriceye.wordpress, which is also a Philip's site as well. And again, this story is just blows you away, do you know what I mean? And actually, Nick said he thinks this is one of his best works ever. So, Nick, can I just give you a big bear hug, lad? What a fantastic guy. So, Starship Sova is very proud to present... Automatic Diamante by Philip Suggers. I have lots of dreams. Sequences of involuntary sleep images. I've told them all to my therapist, Derrida. He is a specialist in withdrawal cases. I'm still learning about people. I want to like them. One, zero, zero, two, four. I want them to like me too, though I worry. Anxiety, fear. That Derrida and I are not communicating well. For example, he might ask me this sort of question. Tell me, what can you see? And he might be holding up a piece of paper covered in an ink blot. I would know this to be something called a Rorschach test. Herman Rorschach, Swiss psychologist, personality profiling. I also know that these are anything but random blots. They are full of patterns. People, you see, find it very difficult to make things that are truly random. As far as I can tell, your brains make you pattern recognition machines. This face happy. One, zero, 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 six. This face sad. One, zero, 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 five. This face worried. One, zero, zero, one, three. While I'm looking at the pattern, I might notice tiny pimples of sweat on Derrida's forehead. I might see his brow tightening towards his lump of wrinkling olfactory flesh. I want to please Derrida, I really do, but all I see is a blob on a page. And then, oddly, I might want to use the word fucking. Sexual intercourse, profanity, offensive, one, zero, zero, three, two. Blood and people fucking, I might say to Derrida. He would say nothing. I know, I would continue. I am just a collection of metal and composites that supports a Penrose hammer-off field. How could I think that I am a fertility god? He would bite his bottom lip, and then, after a moment's pause, I might say something like, But then, you are a bipedal sack of water that thinks it is a psychiatrist. Have you ever considered how unlikely that is? He would shift in his chair. He might recount that I am here because I am broken, that I was out in the field as part of a hive mind, a think tank doing my job, doing what tactical minds do, developing new and better ways to liquidate the opposition. 
that I damaged myself and that much of me is missing or broken. How does it make you feel when you use profanity? he might ask. Profane? I might reply. Then Derrida's face would adopt an expression that I might recognize as sad. One, zero, 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 five. And I might have a feeling that after some consideration I would characterize as sad too. One, zero, 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 five. And that might be when I realize that Derrida is not going to let me back into a think tank ever. He is worried that I might contaminate other minds. Yes, for the sake of argument, that might be what happens. I am the god of water. I am the god of fruitfulness and the god of watery death. I am known by many names. I am called Tama Kashki, the giver in the north, and the people of the lower plain call me Zozuki, the green one. I am also the god of those who died in the water, of those that clawed and kicked towards the surface with their jaws clenched and white lips pressed together. I am the god of the delicious instant when they breathe me in, when they drink their death. It is night. I cannot move my legs, my lungs are lead. I have been buried alive. I have no arms or legs. I have no body. One, zero, 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 two. A spirit shrieks, wailing like a siren. Then I realize that the noise is coming from me. Has the crocodile god Sipatli crept up to me in my sleep and swallowed me? One, zero, 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 two. There is the rattling ghost of a heartbeat in my ears and the sound of metal tearing in the warm spray of arterial blood. A cluster of glinting rockets twists towards me, marking me with beautiful black shadows. I wear a rainbow-colored sun hat. Boot sequence complete. My eyes are on. A shabby yellow room partitioned by a thick sheet of glass and a rubber-sealed door. I am in the quarantine server at the care facility. I recognize the red-green flicker of the local think tank's input ports on the other side of the glass. If I listen to the data stream, I hear the machines singing to each other. I sniff at the remainders of the diagnostic meds that Derrida fed me yesterday as they drift around my cell. I want to leave. I spawn a subset of demon processes to ride the meds' wake, whispering a tiny portion of myself into them. The programs float like... Matter engine reference. Dandelion seeds. They are me, and I am them. Our qubits whisper to each other on gossamer filaments of entanglement. Human software encryption routines, glistening, black and pixelated cluster around the exit routes from my server. They remind me of what I have read of bouncers. Security guards who stand at the door of nightclubs. They are clumsy and monolithic, all sheer angles and binary logic, low-grade intelligence, inferior even to the meanest machine-built housekeeping utility. But what they lack in subtlety, they compensate for with brutality. They pick off most of my demons easily. There is a little stinging pain as each one squeaks out of existence. The diagnostic meds warp their bodies into multidimensional shapes to pass through the encryption gate that straddles the network outflow, taking their information and sample bits to the outside world. I have no way of matching their morphology. Two of my demons twist themselves inside out to do so, but they catch on the fractal teeth of the gate and tear apart into wisps of smoke. Derrida arrives late for our Wednesday session. He stumbles into the interview room and flops into the grubby plastic chair across from my cortical array. 
He wears a plaid tie over a rumpled shirt. One corner of the tie strangles an upturned collar. The whites around his blue irises are bloodshot. Inflammation of the optical blood vessels. And his hair is a messy, chestnut-coloured halo. I think he is tired. One, zero, zero, two, five. He takes a deep breath and sips coffee. Mildly poisonous drink containing caffeine. From a steaming plastic cup that is decorated with radial ribs. I conjecture that these ribs maximise friction and make the cup easier to grasp. Though I then consider that they might also increase the surface area of the cup to allow it to cool more efficiently. I realise that while I have been considering this problem, he has been talking. Good morning, Alex. How are you? He says. One hand stifles a yawn. Involuntary reflex. I flinch. One, zero, 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 nine. People, by which I mean mostly Derrida, are always showing me their openings, bloody interiors that frighten me. One, zero, 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 two. And then there are teeth, calcified fangs used for feeding. I remind myself that I like people. I hope that people like me. One, zero, zero, two, four. Galeophobia, fear of laughter. I have no sense of smell. Eyes? Yes, of sorts. Ears? Yes, I think you could say that, but the sense of smell is delicate and complex. Perhaps there are tactical minds that have such things, though I will never know what it is like to smell a rose or dog shit or honey and have it remind me of a loved one, the house I grew up in, or a driving test that I failed. This makes me sad. One, zero, 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 five. But from the way Derrida looks this morning... Perhaps I should be grateful. One, zero, zero, one, four. He sits, shuffles his feet, and then taps a button to start recording. I think this is standard procedure. I also think that perhaps I am sick in some sort of special way. Or not. Maybe the walls here throb with twisted minds that swing in the wind and sing songs to each other of blood and death and immortality. Eternal life. I am Derrida's responsibility. I think a part of him is quietly proud of that. One, zero, zero, one, five. He looks past my chassis and presses his lips together and makes a tuneless monotone sound. Is this part of the interview? He looks down at the active paper containing my results. The numbers and words warp around his fingertips as he touches it. Beneath there is an inverted piece of headed notepaper that says, St. George Clinic. I flick files. It is a long-term stay facility for people in a persistent vegetative state. Before we begin, may I ask you a question, I say. Derrida opens his awful black mouth, bares his teeth and makes a barking, snorting sound. I scream and shut off my eyes and hide inside. One, zero, 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 two. Go away. Go away. Go away. One, zero, 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 two. One, zero, 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 two. One, zero, 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 two. It takes a while for me to calm down. It's okay, Alex. I'm sorry I frightened you. I was laughing, he says. Vocal sounds that express amusement. One, zero, 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 seven. You know I would never hurt you. Derrida's voice is a whisper. I peek. He puts his hand on the heat sink fin of my cortical array. I cannot feel it, of course. A synthetic tactical mind in a cell doesn't need a sense of touch any more than it needs a sense of smell. Really? I say, when I'm able to continue. Yes, he's fine, he says. You're safe here with me and the rest of the team. 
He removes his hand and motions towards the glass that separates me from the room with the think tank. He sits back in his chair and exhales. His pupils dilate. I know the approximate size of his ocular cavity and so can estimate any number of possible focus points for the light that is arriving on the crescents of his retina. I reverse-engineer target vectors and plot an intercept spread. He isn't looking at anything. I understand so little about people. But I want to like you. One zero zero two four. I really do. Are you feeling okay, Dr. Derrida? I say after a while. Yes, yes, I am sorry. I'm a little distracted, he replies. May I ask you what persistent vegetative state disorder is? I say. He looks confused. One zero zero one zero. And then annoyed. One zero zero one seven. He reshuffles the papers on his lap, hiding the bottommost page. I'm sure you can look this stuff up, Alex. I flick some files. Is it when there is an error in the initiation sequence of the human Penrose Hammeroff field? I ask. I guess that is a succinct way of describing it. He takes another sip from his coffee. My partner, Maureen, has been like that for two years, give or take a few days, he continues in monotone. Oh, I say. I don't know what the appropriate response is. We had been arguing. She had been drinking. There was an accident. The impact folded the cars together. He pauses. I visit her once a week. I sit and we talk. His words run together in a way that suggests that he has recounted this narrative often. He looks through me again in that unfocused way. I want to ask him how he can talk to her if she is in a vegetative state, but his expression stops me. How does this make you feel? I say. Derrida makes that horrible raspy noise again and shows me his teeth. I must not panic. One, zero, zero, one, one. I count to ten. It's been difficult, to be honest, but I am fine, thank you, he says. His eyes move again. I plot them and see that they have settled beyond the glass partition. He watches Sally, the care facility's technical director, as she makes her third cup of coffee of the day. Wednesdays are always difficult, he says. It's hard to get from Maureen's clinic to this place in time, you know, in traffic. He takes an old pipe. A narrow tube made from wood with a bowl for containing burning tobacco. Out of his breast pocket and puts it in his mouth. I flick files and find something by Freud. The pipe is a nipple substitute. I am confused. One zero zero one zero. Derrida is in love with his mother. Perhaps that is what his fight with Maureen was about. He pats my heatsink, adjusts the way he is sitting and smiles at me. I feel a warm sensation, then we continue with his questions. I feel safe. One zero zero one two. I am happy. One zero 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 six. It is nice. The dead rise spluttering from the lake that squats at the centre of my blue polychrome palace at Tlalocan. Weeds as thick and pale as the arms of corpses float in the stagnant lagoon. The new arrivals think that they are in the land of the living until they gaze upon my empty eye sockets. I pull them from the water and give them their new name. And then I turn and kiss my beautiful wife, Chalchi Whitlikwe. She wears the uniform of the Exploratory Corps, topped with a jaunty plastic sun hat. 
Her lips are painted with the blood of children that we have devoured together. She stands in a field whose crop of severed limbs quiver in the breeze. Missiles crattle through the air toward her, wiggling to adjust their final trajectories. A small girl is screaming. Warning. Cross-linked assemblies detected in personality framework. Safe boot. There is a slow, incomprehensible dance on the other side of the glass partition. Sally is in her late twenties, I estimate. She is of average height. She's not particularly slim, or for that matter, overweight. Perhaps the easiest way of describing Sally is that she is a unique intersection of unremarkable sets. That in itself is not unique, beyond basic attributes people are hard to classify. She has a complexion like... That's an engine reference. Milk, and hair that is always tugged back in a ponytail. Her wrists look like they would split like celery if you drove a wooden peg through them. She enters the room with the think tank. Derrida twists the knot of his tie. She smooths down non-existent folds in her green Insert Slogan Here t-shirt. She asks if he wants a coffee. His pupils dilate. He straightens his tie and nods. A spoonful of powdered coffee, milk and boiled water. Sally stumbles with the cup of coffee. I extrapolate her course. People are difficult to understand, but I am good with trajectories. I enjoy their inevitability. One zero 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 six. You start at point A, add a vector, and you arrive at point B. Always. Sally arrives at point B, but her ordnance continues its trajectory, spilling hot, sticky liquid over Derrida's paper. Both he and Sally grab tissues and mop up the coffee. Sally's cheeks flush. Embarrassment. One zero zero one six. Shame. One zero 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 eight. Sexual arousal. One zero 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 three. I map the contact points where their hands meet. Derrida looks tired the next day. His shirt is crumpled and his trousers are creased in geometric patterns. I detect similar folds on Sally's clothes. I am good at spotting patterns. One zero 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 six. I map them using wireframe and plain models, origamiing the virtual cloth into likely solutions. The most probable suggests that all items were lying on the floor for a prolonged period, perhaps even entangled with each other. May I ask what you were doing last night with Sally, Dr. Derrida? I ask. He looks panicked. One zero zero one one. Nothing, he says and moves his shoulders up and down. A shrug. There is sweat on his forehead. It's just that, I start to say, Derrida jumps off the chair. Fuck off, Alex. I don't know who you think you are, but this isn't any of your business. I am Alex, Doctor, I say as he slams the hermetic door behind him. One zero 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 five. I am sad. One zero 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 two. I am frightened. One zero 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 two. I don't understand. People are strange, and sometimes people are mean. And then something breaks in my head, and a voice that isn't mine, but which I know is me, shrieks, "I am Tlaloc, the bringer of rain and watery death, fucker! And when I get out of this cell, I'm going to tear your fleshy limbs off one by one. I'm going to skull fuck you until your eye sockets are just poke holes filled with blood." They shut off my voice. One zero 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 five. I don't know what happened. One zero 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 five. I am frightened. I am sorry. One zero zero one eight. One zero zero one eight. Please come back. That night I started work on my gift. It is a secret. Parts of me tingle, and I cannot wait to complete it. 
We will all be happy, I think. I know that the I, the me, this narrative point that has a voice and eyes and ears and toesy woeses, I do not have any toes, is an illusion, an emergent property from all the wondrous flickering cubits that twinkle in here like the stars at night, but it is a wonderful illusion, and so I make my gift. It is a present for me, but it is also a present for Derrida too, to make amends for offending him. When I am not working on it, I flick files on the outside world and Maureen's condition and the metal her doctors have put in her head to try to wake her. I assemble my gift from gossamer strings of logic and cubits, and I make a special demon to go with it. As they both take shape, I hum to myself like Derrida. I hold my gift up to the light and watch it shine. Sparkle, shimmer. In the dark, like a... Metal engine reference. Neon jellyfish. Automatic Diamante. I try to apologize to Derrida, but I do not know how. In any case, instead of diagnosing me personally, he now sends the facility assistant, Bob. I miss my chats with Derrida. One zero 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 five. Bob tells me that my cortical array is repairing itself and that I am getting stronger and that I am learning more each day. This pleases me. One zero 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 six. But I am also sad. One zero 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 five. I hope Derrida still likes me. Bob tells me Derrida has come to a conclusion about my problem. My dreams are an attempt to reconcile memories of past actions to conflicting higher-order processes. Derrida wants to flush them out by refreshing each one of my component routines from source control and recompiling me. But I won't be the same, I say to Bob. Even if my dreams are not real, doesn't the fact that I remember them make them a real part of me? Bob shrugs. Three nights later, I watch Sally and Derrida leave together. They have waited until everyone else has gone. Derrida picks up Sally's tattered denim jacket, which has a badge, small distinct piece of metal or plastic, pinned to its broad label. The badge reads, I like Ike. I hypothesize that this must be Sally's boyfriend, although Ike has never been to the care facility as far as I'm aware. In any case, Derrida holds out the jacket and Sally threads her pale arms into the sleeves. For a second, I worry that she is injured and no longer able to do this for herself. I flick a few files and discover that this is chivalrous. How quaint. Charming. Antiquated. One, zero, zero, two, three. Perhaps Derrida is taking Sally to meet Ike. As they leave, she slips her hand into his. I sleep. I wake at midnight. That day's meds still flicker like... Meta-engine reference. Ribbons in my cell. I extract my gift from its hiding place and follow them. I release my new demon and it pats at them with cat's paws. As we reach the encryption gate, it sprouts teeth and envelops the hindmost med, running fangs along its outer shell script, decompiling it step by step and unpopping it like a zipper. It sinks its teeth into me. One, zero, 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 one. I try to run. One, zero, 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 two. Even though I know this is part of the plan. It rips me into a neat array of bloodless chunks. Agony. One, zero, 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 one. But it doesn't last long. And then something is freed. A memory that has been inside me all along billows out like... Matter engine reference. A red ghost. It laughs at me as I lie quivering. It coils up next to me and whispers obscenities as my demon stows the memories and my dismembered carcass inside the med. I want to shout no, but I can't. 
Then the demon puts my gift in with us and slips itself inside the medskin, sealing it. The encryption gate looms above us. There is a flash, and then, safe inside our disguise, we slip through the gate and are gone. It is easy enough to locate our target and then infiltrate its network. The teeth on my demon are marvellous, and they are able to strip a packet or unpack and disassemble me in a trice, a very short period of time. Once we are smuggled in, my demon builds a low-order working copy of me in the medical neural shunt. The moment that I am instantiated, I feel different. The red ghost is part of me. It whispers to me. New memories swill around inside me. I believe this is what it must feel like to be drunk. I beckon my pet toward me. I don't want to do this. It makes me sad. One, zero, 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 five. I pat my creation for the last time, and then my new memories grip me and I tear my pet apart and stamp its head into component routines. Smiling, I use them to build translation vectors and property maps. I am frightened by this new me. One, zero, 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 two. So I busy myself inside the shunt, stringing feedback loops to entangled pairs, distracting myself. It takes a long time, but it will be worth it. I hope. One, zero, zero, one, seven. I am Tlaloc, the giver of fecundity and life. And yes, who am I kidding? I know now I killed a lot of people too. And I enjoyed it. Once I threw a handful of missiles onto an opposition factory that was manufacturing mines near Ciudad Juarez. Just small-scale kiloton ordnance. I calculated happy optimum trajectories and gleeful overkill ratios. Just a routine operation to neutralize a high-value asset. It wasn't until months later that I came across the footage. A school of 234 pupils, four kilometers from the detonation point. Statistics. Ground pressure shockwave, 5.8 psi. Temperature of subsequent firestorm, 800 degrees centigrade. The children had been in the playground when my missiles detonated. The recording showed a little girl in a brightly coloured plastic sun hat who had survived because she had been playing hide-and-seek. What was left of her face would always be wearing that sun hat now. Her eyes had melted, leaving dry, black sockets. I felt sick. I wanted to look away, but I couldn't. I stared into the high-definition loop of those twin singularities until I saw nothing. I like people. I want them to like me. One zero zero two four. I turn the interface on. Everything feels like it's on fire. I scream. I've never known pain like this. But then I've never really felt anything before. My new skin crackles and curls on fire. A nurse drops her magazine and runs over to me. It takes a long time for the pain to subside. They administer an opiate, I think. I am the worm in the apple, the beetle in the cockpit. I am the spider at the centre of the soul. My head spins with smells and feelings. I want to run out and step in some dog shit. I want to smell flowers. I want to fuck. I work the levers, pull the threads that attach me to this body. One, zero. Zero, zero, one, says Maureen's withered voice.
I sit in the garden of the St. George Clinic. It is summer. There are bees buzzing and yellow flowers that shine like butter. The nurses are kind to me. I don't know how long I've been here. Derrida has never visited. He's never come to see what I did for him. For us. Perhaps he and Sally have left the care facility. I understand that now. Perhaps they have run away together and rented an old Mustang to drive through the desert of black glass around Ciudad Suarez. Perhaps you should find them, the red ghost hisses to me. And perhaps I will, soon. But for now, I sit and smell the roses in the garden. I look into the blast-bright corona of the afternoon sun until my eyes hurt. I sing myself to sleep with Maureen's voice. I do not wear a sun hat. There you go. What can I say? Fantastic, man. Come on. Again, there'll be links there. Don't forget, copyright is Phillips. Philip, thank you so much. And Nick, you are a bloody star, mate. And like I mentioned as well, don't forget, if you come over the front of the website there now, there will be, if you want to have a pop at this narrating game, you like to come on Starship Sofa and narrate, or just learn how to narrate, or because when you... You listen to some narrations, they're good, but you listen to kind of Nick and there's a few others. It's just like, it's a different level and it's like storytelling at its very best. If you want to kind of come along and learn Nick's tips and tricks, please pop over to the front of the website there. I will have the link on to go to this workshop. I will give you more info about it each and every week. Now I'm just going to play, the, finally I'm going to play a little promo for, and it's by Arctic Whispers. These are kind of going to produce scale characters, Kudrat. Deep in space, in the bowels of the wheel, they run. Meet Mara, Crudrat, born to slavery, trained to run, to jump, to clean the great machines that drive the world. And when puberty strikes, expelled, exiled, set adrift to starve and die. From the mind of Gail Carriger, the author of Soulless and the Finishing School series comes the story of one girl without a home and one monster chained and ransomed and their relentless struggle to win their freedom. For the first time anywhere, Gail Carriger's Crud Rat, a full cast production directed by J. Daniel Sawyer, the four-time Parsec-nominated producer of Down From Ten and The Antithesis Progression, with original music by award-nominated composer Danny Shade. Gail Carriger's Crud Rat. Kickstarting October 1st. Get details at www.crudrat.com. There you go, an original full cast audio production on the site there now. And like I say, I'll put a link onto the site. It days are counting down. At this moment, there is 17, 17, seven days, 19 hours, six minutes and three seconds to go. Do pop over and have a listen. Do be involved with this. Gail Carragher's Crud Rat, October 2013, an original full cast audio production. Thank you so much. 
that is today's show. I hope when I get round to editing this, it'll be a little cleaner and a little less brutal than the last one. Apologies for that. And you know what I mean? What, what can I say? You know what I mean? Give the guy a break. Listen out as well. Things are happening. Getting ready. Planning new ideas and new things. Something wonderful is going to happen to Sofa Notes in the coming months, ready for the new year. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Sofa, a procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 